CCC and um, Bailey for inviting me to be part of this panel uh, of esteemed uh, colleagues. Um, and welcome everybody. So this is a really um, heavy topic, but one that um, I think is very interesting to people. Uh, my role on this panel, I think, is really to first give a few definitions so we're all speaking about the same thing. Um, I'm going to mention a few historical, uh, uh, reinforcing the concept that um, that one of the people mentioned in their introductory remarks that these issues are not new. Um, in fact, they're quite old. And then um, I'll give my clinical uh, expertise or perspective on um, this topic. And I will share my personal journey of my own opinions about the topic, if you'll indulge me that way. So um, I would like to start with a case that we'll come back to at the end. I have a couple of cases, and these are all um, people I've cared for. Um, the first case is a woman who I cared for at the VA, unusual to care for a woman at the VA. I had actually also cared for her husband, who had uh, died before her. And she was um, a, a woman in her late 60s who had a lung mass that she did not want to have worked up. Um, it was pretty clear that it was a cancer, but she did not want to have any biopsy or work up for the, the uh, mass. She had a son and a daughter, and she was described by her family as always having been a difficult person. Um, she was admitted, admitted with mental status changes, um, confusion, uh, and she was found to have a brain mass now. And um, we treated her with medications that cleared her, uh, and she got radiation. Um, and, um, and steroid medications that clear her cognition. And um, soon after, she started to have, uh, she was admitted to the palliative care unit and she was starting to have some functional decline and she started asking me to give her something to make things go faster or to put me to sleep. Uh, what's the point of waiting? Those were her words. Um, the other case is a gentleman who was diagnosed with um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and um, had actually suffered a lot of trauma in his early childhood. Um, his siblings literally put him in a car and brought him from out of state and brought him to the Bellevue emergency room because they were told that there was a, a hospice unit there, which was actually no longer true. There was no hospice unit there. Um, and so he was cared for at Bellevue for a very long time because he didn't have New York insurance. He was waiting for the insurance to be transferred and asking me to give him something to hasten his death. and and speaking about the fear of losing his voice, both literally, because in ALS you lose neurologic function, and uh, figuratively losing his autonomy. Um, his physical symptoms were quite well controlled, but he continued to ask for this, and when we discussed that he had certain uh, medications he was taking that might be prolonging his life that he could stop, he said, no, I don't want to stop those. I want you to give me something, to inject me with something to hasten my death. So these are two cases that we'll, we'll come back to. Um, so just some definitions. I think probably the most important definition, uh, physician-assisted suicide, physician aid in dying, and medical aid in dying essentially refer to the same thing, um, and the, the terms have sort of grown with society. Suicide <coughs> has strong connotations about mental illness and other um, spiritual and religious issues, so the word suicide has been sort of taken out. Um, and medical aid in dying or physician aid in dying is the terms that we use for the concept that's being described. Uh, somebody, a physician giving a prescription to someone who can self-administer a medication. And I'm glad he defined the criteria, which pretty much is similar in, in all the state laws. Um, euthanasia is a term that really just means good death. 
and it's really the modern definition is giving a medication with the intent of causing death sooner or hastening death, and the idea that somebody else is administering the medication. There's other terms that people use, um, passive and active euthanasia, which just refers, passive actually refers to the concept of withdrawing life-sustaining treatment, knowing that death might happen sooner when you withdraw those treatments, but you're not actually actively giving something that will hasten someone's death. You're withdrawing something that's artificial and allowing death to happen. Um, and so I guess one other term that I do think is important medically and conceptually and ethically is this concept of double effect, which is that um, ethically in the United States, it is permissible to give a medication symptom that the unintended uh, unintentional effect may be that it might cause another problem which might hasten death. So for example, um, two ways to look at this. If you give somebody a medication to lower their blood pressure, but it also happens to lower their heart rate, your intention wasn't to lower the heart rate, your intention was to lower the blood pressure. But you anticipated that this could happen and you were willing to accept that possibility. In palliative care and end-of-life care, the concept of giving a medication for symptoms um, to control intractable suffering or symptoms, knowing that it may cause someone to be more sedated um, and, and possibly um, hasten death, although studies have shown that that's not actually the case with opioid use. Uh, the studies have been done to show opioid use and the amount of opioid given, and patients at end-of-life who are using opioids for symptoms often actually live a little bit longer, not shorter. So those are some definitions just to get us on the same page. And um, I just want to go into a couple of historical uh, points, and, and I think it was Bailey that mentioned that these are not new issues. Um, so in ancient Greece, euthanasia was actually part of the typical um, care uh, in terminal agonizing conditions. Um, and Hippocrates said, I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan. So Hippocrates was actually in the minority um, view viewpoint at that time because it, typically euthanasia was part of the, 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 the care in terminal illness. And then, um, you know, with the up, up, upswing of Christianity, euthanasia uh, became more and more uh, opposed. Um, and then Francis Bacon actually wrote that it was a physician's duty not only to restore the health, but to mitigate pain and dolors, and not only when such mitigation may, con may conduce to recovery, but when it may serve a fair and easy passing. What I think is interesting about that, that, that quote is that he's not saying intentionally hastening death. He's actually describing palliative care, you know, helping people with distress that might go along with their illness but not talking about um, hastening death. And then um, with the advent of morphine and um, palliating the pains during death was a concept that kind of came up during the Civil War. Um, but in the 1870s, um, uh, Samuel Williams published an essay on euthanasia. And I just want to read this quote and also read you the response from the Journal of the American Medical Association. So the quote was, the main object of the essay being merely to establish the reasonableness of the following proposal, that in all cases of hopeless and painful illness, it should be the recognized duty of the medical attendant, whenever so desired by the patient, to administer chloroform or such anesthetic so as to destroy consciousness at once and put the sufferer to a quick and painless death. 
that is describing medical aid and dying, I would say. Um, all needful precautions being adopted to establish beyond a uh, possibility of doubt that the remedy was applied to the express wish of the patient. So there's the patient autonomy piece that you see in the current laws. But JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association response, called it an attempt to make the physician don the robes of an executioner. Um, in more modern history, people know about uh, Brittany Maynard, who was a young woman who was very photogenic, um, who was beautiful, recently married, who had a brain tumor and moved herself to Oregon or Washington where, this, where uh, she could develop residency and used the law and she did ultimately um, take her medication and hasten her death. So with that, I just want to go into a little bit about um, some medical literature that talks about this. I think the first one was a survey done by my mentor, Diane Meyer, in the late 90s. So it was published in 1998, which means the data comes from before any state had legalized physician aid and dying laws, because that was around the time of uh, Oregon's law, 97-98. So the survey was done before the publication. And she surveyed 1,900 um, physician specialties, specialties that have a lot and of critical care, geriatrics, palliative care, <coughs> internal medicine. And 18% had received a request since entering practice for someone to hasten their death. That's almost 20% of people had had someone ask them to give them something to hasten their death. I, I thought that was a really high number. But even more startling, 3% of the sample reported that they had written at least one prescription to be used to hasten death. So they knew that the prescription was going to be used in that way. 3%, this before it was legal anywhere, and almost 5% had administered a medication that they felt was a lethal injection. So that's actually euthanasia, not medical aid in dying where someone self-administers. Now, in fairness to that last, um, that last statistic, the almost 5%, this was a time when palliative care and the concept of double effect was not widely studied, talked about, it was known, but it wasn't something that was considered part of standard care. And so it's possible that some of the people that answered, yes, I've given something that was a lethal injection, they may have actually been giving medication to relieve pain, and then the patient died. And I would not, I would not consider that, in my view, as euthanasia if the intention was to treat someone's severe intractable pain if the unintended side effect was, or they thought, was that the patient died. Um, another study that, I, that has informed my opinion about uh, medical aid in dying in my practice is a study done by William Breitbart. Uh, he worked uh, at Calvary as a psychiatrist and internist, and he studied patients with terminal illness, and he um, looked at the intersection of hopelessness, um, request for hasten death, and depression, three separate things. And, and what he found is, and all these patients had a terminal illness, 16% of the patients met criteria for major depression. 17% had a high desire for hasten death. And the depression diagnosis and severity and hopelessness were each independently significantly desire for Depression is a treatable illness. If you have a treatable illness that's leading you to make a request for hasten death, we should probably treat the treatable illness. Um, and then hopelessness was independently correlated. Um, so my question is, well, what are we doing to help people with hopelessness and depression? Um, so I think it's probably a good place for me to say that early in my career, I um, was, if, when I, if I had to label myself, um, 
I think I was early in my career, I was probably very cautiously, like pretty much in the middle, but cautiously felt that there were um, times that I would have supported the concept of medical aid in dying. Uh, as I've become more experienced, I actually would say I'm cautiously against. So just full disclosure of my own personal beliefs about these things. Um, and I have never participated in an intentional hastening of death. It's not legal in my state, which I'm happy about, but I, with the trends, the way they're going, it's quite possible that um, it, it will be legalized soon. Um, I won't go into this slide too much because I think uh, my colleagues are going to discuss it, but just briefly the sort of pros and cons listed here of the reasons why people might legalize aid in dying. Um, we talked a little bit about autonomy. I liked um, one of the comments on the panel before about Dr. Grazzi's uh, comment about provider autonomy. <laughs> playing into our practice as well. And so on the con side, you know, does personal autonomy trump or outweigh societal and professional values and autonomy? Um, we will talk in a minute a little bit about the slippery slope. The slippery slope people worried about when medical aid in dying became legalized is actually not what has turned out to be true. I think the concern was that vulnerable patients would be pushed toward this. In fact, what's happened, if you look at Oregon, is um, only one person of color has ever um, requested and used it, but still the highest utilizers are white males, highly educated, single or divorced or widowed. This is the same group of people who have the highest rate of suicide as well. And so I think that's an important thing to note. They are people who've always had control in their life. They are the most privileged in our society. The less privileged people are not the people typically making these requests. Um, so other, other kind of comments on the list of pros and cons. Um, I'm a full believer of the concept that we should try the least risky thing first. And so the idea that we don't really have adequate access to really high quality palliative care that can address many of the concerns and support patients in a way that I'm not just, I'm not talking about physical pain because that's not why people make these requests. People make these requests because number one, they don't want to be a burden. They have lost the things that bring life joy. So um, they're not hearing anymore. They're not seeing anymore. Their functional decline has kept them from the things that once brought joy to them. Um, it's really more the existential reasons that people are typically uh, making these requests. It's not us usually from intractable pain or symptoms. We're pretty good at treating those things now. But, but adequate palliative care is not just pain and symptom management. It's also addressing these uh, psychic issues of, of end of life. Um, there are legal alternatives that exist. Um, and so personally, I feel like I should be utilizing the legal alternatives, which we'll talk about in a second with our cases. And uh, my personal belief is also why physicians. There's an important relationship between physicians and, and patients, and we, we need to respect that. Um, the pros for legalizing, it's already happening, as you saw in the study I, I mentioned. It is happening, so maybe we should safeguard how and when it's happening and regulate it. Um, that we do have a moral and ethical obligation of our profession to help relieve suffering and support dignity. Um, and some people feel there's no distinction between removing life-sustaining treatment, that's what LSC stands for, and euthanasia. I personally think that intention is important, and so withdrawing life-sustaining treatment and allowing a process to take place, to me, is different, and ethically it's considered different than intentionally injecting some, something. Um, I won't go into some new, so what some of the treatment potentials are, but 
Uh, you've probably started to read about things like the use of psychedelics and ketamine and unusual agents to help people with their existential distress at end of life. Um, and these maybe hold some potential for how to take care of people in the um, end of life stages when they're thinking about this. Um, I, I kind of like this slide because I think this cartoon really actually supports the concept. So it says, hmm, if I may, Mrs. Hamilton, before we discuss assisted suicide, I do feel I should at least examine your husband. And, and I, I put this up here, it's funny and it's nice to bring a levity to this very heavy topic, but the idea that there's so much we can do that we're not doing and yet we're going straight to medical aid and dying to me feels um, like we're jumping the gun a little bit. Um, this is a slide just showing you the data in Oregon up to 2017. And what I want you to see is medically what we know is that um, giving the prescription is therapeutic in a third of the patients. In other words, a third of the patients that make this request receive a prescription and never use it. Um, and that's been pretty consistent if you look. Um, I also think it's important to see the rise. Um, and that gets me back to the slippery slope argument. Um, the slippery slope that has occurred is not the one we anticipated, that vulnerable patients, the elderly, people of color, the poor, would be pushed toward this. What we have seen is the slippery slope of, well, if we're already doing it here, why don't we do it there? So now, in Europe, it, physician aid in dying or medical aid in dying is legal for children in Belgium and has been used in children in Belgium. Um, that there are other sort of atypical scenarios, a prisoner who d didn't like the life behind bars and the violent impulses that were causing him suffering, but that is not a terminal illness. Um, 50% clinic were granted permission for euthanasia for things that were not um, the typical diagnoses of cancer and stage heart failure and stage lung disease, but rather for mental illness. And it's true, mental illness has a high mortality rate, um, but it also has treatments. But Asperger's syndrome? Probably 10% of the people in this room have are on the spectrum of Asperger's. They're highly qualified, highly intelligent people. Um, so wh what are we doing? So that's the slippery slope that I think has become uh, concerning. Um, so in the few minutes I have left, I just want to re revisit the cases. I'm uh, happy to answer questions later. So uh, the first woman I spoke about, the first case, um, after much discussion of what her legal options were, and the legal options are she could withdraw certain life-sustaining treatments, she could voluntarily choose to not eat and drink if she wants to hasten her death. Um, people typically don't choose that. The patient agreed to allow us to more aggressively manage her anxiety and agitation symptoms, which we did with medications that treat anxiety and agitation. She was a little bit more sedated, but she still woke up to eat like three ensure puddings at every meal. Um, and she was no longer, um, she, was, she was able to communicate, but was no longer communicating distress and asking for hasten death. I feel like this was a palliative care win. We were able to treat her distress, but she was no longer asking for hastening of death. And she lived for weeks or many weeks after that. Um, the other case I, uh, to follow up, um, this gentleman was offered, you can stop taking, he had had a remote uh, transplant, and he, I said, you could stop taking your anti-rejection medications. You may not go into rejection, but you might, we don't know. And he never wanted to do that. He never wanted to stop his rejection medications. Um, and he um, just exhibited this distress for as long as possible, but we, we stayed with him and we, we showed him non-abandonment, and he eventually was transferred to a nursing home that had hospice. 
and shortly after getting to the nursing home, he had a, an episode of respiratory distress where he was transferred to the inpatient hospice and his respiratory distress within a few days of that event. Um, and so that was the result of his case. And I'll, I'll leave it there and hand it over to my colleagues. And thank you for your uh, attention. <laughs> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Kavoda Rabbanim. To Bailey, to Zvi, thank you so much for your invitation to be here today. And to you, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for allowing me to present a slightly different, or more than slightly different, analysis to the subject than that which you've been privileged to hear this morning. Um, I am not a health professional. I am not a Rav. I am as far away from either as you could possibly imagine. I am a career politician. I've served in various levels of government for the past 30 years. The past 14 years I've served and continue to serve as a member of the General Assembly of the State of New Jersey, a little bit closer, the State of New Jersey, and I was just appointed by the Speaker of the Assembly to a position called Policy Chair, which puts me as the third ranking member of the Assembly. Uh, New Jersey is a uh, bicameral state. We have both a Senate as well as an Assembly. Um, I appreciate the fact that the title of this discussion is a bit wide open because I think words make a difference, certainly in terms of how we perceive and how we recognize. The question, of course, is does one look at this bill as physician-assisted suicide or perhaps as death with dignity? I'd rather leave that question open for the time being, as well as the question as to how I voted on the bill. The bill did pass both houses of New Jersey, as well as signed by the governor. Um, if I could ask a, a favor, please, and this is oft times done for various reasons. Number one, if you were against the bill, could you raise your hand, please? If you were against the bill, the bill in terms of death with dignity or physician-assisted suicide, however you'd like to speak loud. I'm sorry. My children usually don't ask me to speak. If you're in favor of, if you were in favor of the bill that we call death with dignity or physician-assisted suicide, raise your hand. Giving the right of a patient to call, for lack of another term, his or her own death. Could you raise your hand, please? How about those people who are opposed to the bill? Could you raise your hands, please? Okay, interesting. Last group, could you tell me, is anyone here from New Jersey? <laughs> Hopefully not from my district. <laughs> and last question, uh, are there any uh, medical students or pre-med students in the audience? How about political science students? Well, there goes that one. All right. <laughs> So what I would like to do is really in two or three parts. One is to define the act. Two is to, to, to discuss the transition from idea to its actual implementation. Um, and three is to provide some other thoughts, if you will. New Jersey State Assembly Bill A1504, Medical Aid in Dying for the Terminally Ill Act. 
permits qualified terminally ill patients to self-administer medication to end life in a humane and dignified manner. The Medical Aid in Dying for the Terminally, Bill, Terminally Ill Act went into effect on August 1st, 2019. On August 27, 2019, the Appellate Division issued an order which removed the temporary restraints. The Act defines terminally ill as the terminal stage of an irre irre irreversibly illness with the prognosis based upon reasonable medical certainty of a life expectancy of six months or less. Two doctors must confirm the diagnosis of a terminally illness and, the patient, and that the patient is capable of making a sound decision to end his or her life. If either an attending physician or consulting physician determines that a patient may not be capable of decision-making rationally, the physicians must refer the patient to a psychiatrist, psychologist, or clinical social worker who would determine if the patient is indeed capable. At least 15 days would have to elapse between the initial oral request and the writing of a prescription, and 48 hours would have to elapse between a patient signing the written request and the writing of the prescription. That's the law. There are a number of states which have enacted similar laws to that of the state of New Jersey, California, Colorado, D.C., Hawaii, Maine, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. In Colorado, the bill passed as a ballot measure. It was not done by the legislature, but rather by ballot. It passed in November 16 and went into effect in December of 16. Colorado only tracks prescriptions that are given and not utilization. The District of Columbia Death with Dignity Act went into effect on February 18, 2017. Implementation started June 6, 17. Two residents used the availability presented to them in 2018. In Hawaii, the Our Care, Our Choice Act went into effect on January 1, 2019. Report released for first five months, eight terminally ill patients qualified under the law. Two of them used medical aid in dying. In Maine, there, uh, the act was signed June 12, 2019. There's no available data. Vermont control of the End of Life Act has been in effect since May of 13. 29 Vermont residents use the state's assisted death to date. New Jersey's first experience with death with dying occurred in 1976. Many of you might remember the Supreme Court of the state of New Jersey ruled that the parents of comatose Karen Ann Quinlan could remove her life support. A3328, the New Jersey Death with Dignity Act, was introduced in 2012. By what right does government have to make such a law or not? The preamble to the Constitution begins, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. 
the people of this country determine what will become law and what will not by dint of who they elect to the various positions in our representative democracy. Government is the means by which we guarantee the rights and enhance the rights to all citizens, including racial, ethnic, religious minorities through common sets of law created by those who have been empowered by popular will. This is why government permeates our lives. Democrats traditionally like to be a little bit more aggressive in the role of government, and we're told that Republicans perhaps not so much. But the bottom line is that government has the right and the ability to involve itself in this debate if for no other reason than it wants to. But it is also that which limits what government is able to do by the rights afforded to the citizen. During the seven between the implementation, nearly one half million people died in the state of New Jersey. What responsibility does the government have to guarantee the rights to those who are dying and what limits should exist? While the state has the mandate to protect individuals from uninvited harm, it does not have the mandate to ensure that citizens live upstanding lives dictated by certain ethics or mores. How we define the harm principle with legislation that allows suffering to receive life-ending medication. Whether I voted in favor or opposed to the bill, I will tell you that I did so out of a sense of religious and perhaps moral responsibility. The question, of course, from a Jewish point of view is, is there a divergence between the two? Is the role of law to allow space for individual morality? Those who believe in physician-assisted suicide will partake. Those will not. The history of the Jewish community with law has been a bit interesting, as all of us are very, very well aware. Ultimately, for the Jewish community, I would argue that the most liberal of laws are to the benefit of the Jewish community. Inasmuch as it gives us the most flexibility that we would have, when I was first elected to the assembly, <coughs> I remember a uh, bill came up which was of questionable analysis as far as I was concerned. Do I vote for it? Do I vote against it? I knew nothing about national organizations except having joined a bunch of them throughout my years. And I will tell you that I called both the Orthodox Union and I called the Goodest Yisrael. I can say Goodest Yisrael, can't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, forgive me, the Orthodox Union did not come back to me. Don't tell that to uh, whoever. Um, a Goodest Yisrael did. My question to, to a, a Goodest Yisrael was, what do I do with this bill? It seems to expand the rights of the people in terms of the issue of abortion. Isn't that something that's positive for us? And the response was, to my surprise, no. Because we as a people want to set ourselves up on a certain level, Madrega, if you will, and this bill would undermine that. In every country besides, with the exception of Israel, of course, the Jewish people are a tiny minority. We lack the ability ourselves 
to enshrine our morality, our definition of humanity into law. That extends on all levels, by the way. When most people ask me what district I represent, they look at me and they say, that's a very easy district. You have so many members of the Jewish community. And of course, each and everyone agree with everything that you do, and they flock to you <laughs> and can't wait to vote for you. So let's understand that I have one of the more heavily Jewish populated districts in the state of New Jersey. It pales in comparison to uh, my friends in Lakewood, of course. But the effective number of Jews, Orthodox Jews specifically, who reside in my district amounts to 6% of my actual vote. So if one hopes to be motivated by religious direction alone, unless one can translate that direction multi-religiously to our friends in the Catholic, Christian, Evangelical, Muslim, etc. communities, it will fall flat. But let's look at a few historical experiences with the law. In 439 CE, the Codex Theodosius systemized the legal repression of the Jewish people, creating constraints upon which became the standard in Europe until the age. Restrictions would be expanded throughout Europe, including preventing Jews from guild membership, prohibiting them from owning land, outlawing most professions, with the exception of those considered inferior, as such as rent and tax collection. The Fourth Lateran Council was created by our good friends in the Catholic Church. It demanded that Jews and Muslims wear a special dress to enable them to be distinguished from Christians so that no Christian should come to marry them and be part of their people. The clincher for all of us perhaps is 1933, the law for the restoration of the professional civil service, which excluded all non-Aryans, in fact became the basis of the Nuremberg Laws, the destruction of the Jewish people, etc., etc. I mention this only because occasionally governments have made a mistake. In all those cases, though, one finds them to follow the basic principles of democracy. Democracy does go awry, and there's no question about that. But there's no question also that government in its form has several checks and balances, which at least in this country have proven to be solid, hopefully. Let me dissect the bill, if you'll allow me, in terms of the governmental process. In the state of New Jersey, in most states, bills are submitted by members. The bill then goes to the head of the body, whether it be the speaker or the president of the Senate. That body then decides whether or not the bill should be heard in committee. If the bill is heard in committee, testimony is taken from the public. The bill then goes back to the speaker or to the Senate president, who approves it to be heard in the House or in the Senate. If the exact same process, word for word, is followed in another House, the other House, both houses then submit the final two who has the ability to sign, veto, or conditionally veto the bill into law or not. Approximately 10,000 bills are written each year in the state of New Jersey. Approximately 200 actually become law within the two-year session. New Jersey is a democratic state. 
we are a solid blue state. The assembly is 54 members out of 80 Democrat. The Senate is 25 members out of 40 Democrat. In the assembly, which is composed of 80 members, you need 41 votes to pass. Exactly 41 votes passed the bill. In the Senate, you need 21 out of 40 votes to pass the bill. 21 votes were in favor of the bill. In the assembly, of those who voted against the bill, of the five Democrats who voted against the bill, four of them did so on professed religious concerns. The same in the Senate. Why do members vote the way they do? Ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you if you've ever called your representative, whether it be a state senator or assembly person or whoever, um, that telephone call will tell you why it was so important that you did so because, frankly, we received so few phone calls. Lots of postcards, lots of emails, which all, all are basically the same. But we're influenced by what it is that you say to us because the most important thing that any politician has to do in his or her career is to get reelected. And by listening to you, the possibility is that we'll get reelected of Unless, of course, you're crazy, in which case we'll dismiss it. Right? So that is a primary consideration. Obviously, a member's own position, obviously, the direction of the party is extremely important. And yet you heard the numbers. Both bills barely passed their respective houses. Let me digress for just a moment, if I may. Approximately seven years ago, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer, I think most of you know, um, is a bit of a death sentence. The doctors told us that he would have three months to live. Of course, I said, what do doctors know? It's still an art and not a science. Sorry to all the medical students here. Um, God knows how long he'll live, and besides, it's not in our hands, it's in God's hands, and God's hands alone. Well, I must tell you, almost down to the day, my father passed away in three months. He was on hospice at home. It was the most difficult period of time that I think that I ever lived through. My uh, baby brother, babies. 55 years old, but my little brother lives in Philadelphia. I live in Passaic. Uh, my parents were living in Willow Grove. My brother and I would substitute back and forth all the time to be with both of my parents. My mother was alive at the time. It was a slow, slow disintegration. I don't know how many of you are familiar with hospice, but at some point, the very lovely people from hospice say to you, every time your father seems to be in any kind of pain whatsoever, simply put this little capsule underneath his tongue. It will relieve his pain. What they also told us was if he gets thirsty, give him some ice chips. They also told us do not give him anything to eat. And that, I understand, is hospice. 
And I will tell you that there were any number of times when I looked at my little brother and said, are we, create, are we causing murder here by not allowing him nutrition with which to continue? Now, I understand that in Jewish law, one is not allowed to take away something, but is not required to give something in terms of prolongation of life. But I will admit to you that there are no words to describe watching your father or your mother or, God forbid, a spouse or, God forbid, a child or anyone else. Such deterioration of not only the body but the ability to communicate. I will tell you, if ever I was faced with the consequence of a decision of how to vote on the bill that came before the assembly, it was that. Because although it was extraordinarily <coughs> difficult to pull the lever in whatever direction I pulled it, I will tell you I had any number of groups, over 30, frankly, that came and visited in my office, either in Trenton or in Passaic or in Bergen, on the bill. And I will tell you, I believe the term is, rips your heart out. So I understand the absolutism of halakha, as it must be. And I understand the absolute authority of the Rabbanut, of Das Torah, as it must be. But I would suggest to you that on the most practical of levels, think about which way you would vote if this were bringing if this were brought before you, think of someone who is a dearly loved member of your family and imagine for a moment being in a position where you, through your own words, could allow them to shorten their lives and their lives for a clear end that they saw as they were wasting away seeing no hope for the future and only pain in the present. Very good friends of mine in the community where I live are members of the Hevra Kadisha, as I'm sure you have friends who have served in such a glorious and wonderful, wonderful position before. The preparation of the body, of the mace, is intricate painstaking. It is done throughout so that the mace will be treated with the cover that it should be. Not a word is spoken amongst those people performing the tahara. The linen garments are laid out in specific order. The bathing of the mace is done to a T. So someone asked me, are we showing more covet to a mace than we are to a still alive <coughs> person? I had some notes in terms of challenging Chalacha just a little bit, but having admitted to you that I am perhaps the least educated person in this room, and Rabbi Glasser can attest to that. I, I, I won't I won't do so. But I will suggest that the absolutism of Chalacha, which must be the case, 
nonetheless must be translatable into something that we can practice and be comfortable practicing. I don't know if I would have instructed a doc to perform, to give my father the drugs that would have ended his life quickly, less painlessly, not only for my brother and my mother and all of our family, but for him. If, in fact, I would not be showing more covered by allowing him to make that decision in a legally acceptable way. There is no doubt in my mind that this bill will become law throughout the 50 states within the next few years. No doubt at all. To assume otherwise would frankly be, no, it, it wouldn't make sense. How it is that we respond communally will of course be up to our leaders, our rabbinic leaders, to decide. Um, in the meantime, we are left with these conclusions and how we respond and how we not respond. One final note, if I may. There was an issue that was brought up in the state of New Jersey, and many of you in New York are familiar with the issue as well, and that is in terms of inoculation. Should all children be required to be vaccinated prior to entering public school. Um, it was a very healthy debate back and forth. The bill would essentially end religious exemption for vaccination. Numerous rabbanim, and I could find no one who was against the bill until one person said to me, we believe in vaccination, but we believe also, more importantly, that there might in fact be some instances, however remote, when in fact a Rav's opinion needs to be decided. And that being the case, I was guided by my own conscience to vote against the bill because it would indeed limit the ability of the Jewish community to exercise its authority on behalf of its members. I hope that you might have some idea of how I voted, just to let you know I voted against the bill. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time this morning. sense of trepidation and intimidation that I address, first of all, this Tzibor, this crowd which has many people far more qualified and expert on various components or all the components of this topic, and certainly acknowledge uh, the presence and influence of Rabbi Temler, who has so much to say and to teach us on these topics. And the topic itself is, of course, one that causes great intimidation and trepidation. We're dealing literally with matters of life and death, and as we just heard described, with aspects that tug at the emotions so powerfully and so intensely, and that present 
torturous experiences, it's not an easy subject to discuss, but it is one where the halacha has touched upon many components. And uh, we'll start just by yesterday's Kriya Torah, yesterday's laning in Parshas Mishpatim. So we read the words, Verapo Yerape, in the end of the first Aliyah, and shall surely heal. And it's based on that phrase that the Talmud has the perhaps surprising comment that Mikan Shiesh that from here we see there is a permission for the doctor to heal. And it's surprising that it's not only permission, we know it's a sacred mandate. That's the job and the obligation and the requirement. And of course, the hallowed image of the Jewish doctor goes all the way back to the Torah itself. So the idea that we need to be told that it's permitted, that seems surprising. Isn't it clearly an obligation? And it prompts a lot of commentary and a lot of suggestions as to what we mean when we say it's permitted. But among them, there's a comment of the Lutzgerov, a very popular sefer on Chumash, the Oznaim Latorah, where he suggests that the emphasis is on Mikan that there is permission given for the doctor to heal. There is no permission given for the doctor to give despair and to tell the patient, give up, there is no hope, and go home and forget about it. And it's a complex point because the question of how exactly to deal with a situation that defies medical intervention, that defies our ability to heal and to bring about a cure and how that should be communicated is a topic of much complexity and nuance. But one can assume certainly to take the point to the next level, the question of is it the place of the doctor to kill the patient or to assist in killing the patient. So that certainly, Lutzkerov would certainly apply his statement there, but that's not within the mandate that the Torah gives us here of Rishos Lerofilerapos, of uh, permission for the doctor to heal. So the question of how exactly to deal with that conflict that we have where sometimes we know, and we just heard so powerfully depicted, that there are often circumstances where there is unbearable pain, pain that's unbearable for the patient and unbearable for all of those who care and love for the patient and who can't watch what's going on and their love is the source of such tremendous anguish and it's a genuine conflict that no one can deny on the emotional level and on the moral level as well. in many different ways, and there are many different passages that the Talmud touches upon, but perhaps one that's quoted most often is a passage in the Gemara in Tzubis, Adaf Koftalid, which is commented upon by the Ran, one of the great Rishonim elsewhere, in his commentary to Mesachus Nadarim. And there the Talmud says that the maidservant of Rebbe was anguished with compassion for Rebbe, seeing how much he was suffering from his physical illness, and she was distressed by the fact that the rabbis were praying for his recovery, assuming that that was not as she understood it in his best interest due to his suffering, and therefore she took action to interrupt their prayer, and he passed away. And the Ran, commenting on that, again elsewhere in the Dharim, the Ran comments that what we derive from that incident is that there are times 
when it may be appropriate to pray for someone to pass away, if someone is suffering to such an extent. Now the comments of the Ran here, and this is not the context or the time in which we have the ability to give a full shear about this, is the topic of extensive, extensive analysis in the Lachic literature, and that's just in reference to this one source. There's so much more one can bring, but just in terms of this one comment of the Ran, there's quite extensive debate as to whether what the Ran says is reflective of practical halakha, uh, the Arach HaShulchan did bring it. Many others thought it was not reflective of practical halacha. There is extensive debate about this position of the Ran. But what I think is most instructive for us here is what the Ran coexists with. And the fact that we know that even those who do accept the position of the Ran, or perhaps in limited circumstances, accept the position of the Ran, and there is extensive debate about that. Some assume perhaps only the patient would have such a right, but no one else would have such a right. Some assume other kinds of limitations. But everyone would agree that with the idea that it's still prohibited to actively kill the patient. So we live with a, a certain tension there that on the one hand, we may sympathize to such an extent that there might even at least be entertained the concept that it might be appropriate to pray on behalf of their demise, and yet at the same time, we may not be permitted to do anything to bring that about, and some may also feel that this coexists with an obligation to do more to continue their life, which is a debated point to what extent that's the case, and there's a wide range of opinions which time's not going to allow us to go into. But what I'm focusing on here is the fact that those two positions can coexist. A, a sympathy with the suffering to such an extent to say that it might even be appropriate to pray for the demise of this patient, while at the same time recognizing that there's still a prohibition to kill the patient and asking that maybe even to do more in order to keep them alive according to those authorities who feel that's the case. And we can hold both these ideas in our head at the same time. And it's crucial to consider, as we consider both aspects of the prohibition of killing, technically the prohibition of murdering, we read two weeks ago in the parasha, Lo Sirtsach, we are not uh, permitted to murder, however we define that. And we understand that there are two components, there are two angles with which we consider this question. One is what we might call the consequentialist angle, and one is the formalist angle. And on the one hand, the consequentialist angle, as the Rambam expresses in Mishnah Torah, in the laws of murder in Hochot Ritzeach, that murder is distinct from all other prohibitions because of its impact, because of its consequence, that there are few transgressions one can imagine that has such a negative impact on the world, on society. So coming at it from a consequentialist aspect, so we certainly do see the impact as very significant, but we know that there are variables, and certainly if one can imagine that the patient may be suffering tremendously, so then the variables do seem to be affected by that, and one could imagine seeing the consequence being somewhat affected. But here it's also a complicated question because as much as the suffering is very much acknowledged and very much taken into account by all authorities, at least as far as how it is recognized and as far as our obligation of compassion. Nonetheless, we see life as having an inherent value to it, as having inherent holiness to it. Uh, my father, Zephon Levracha, wrote a book with a title, Where There's Life, There's Life, by which he meant to make the point that life has its inherent 
holiness, which is not necessarily to mandate that it always has to be prolonged regardless of any kind of consequences, but simply to focus on the fact that in our philosophy it does have its inherent value, and that's a part of what is weighed against that consideration in looking at that balance of the consequential perspective. And it's perhaps instructive to note a, a comment of Roshomo Zaman Orbach. Roshomo Zaman Orbach notes that even when saying in the same breath that there may not be an obligation to pursue certain aggressive measures, at the same time, he says, we should still consider the fact that if you have the world's wealthiest person and all of his material resources were in one location and that location was on fire and it was Shabbos, and there was nobody in danger, it was just this one item that was in, in danger of carrying all of his material wealth, we wouldn't be permitted on Shabbos to put out the fire to save all of his material wealth. But at the same time, if even a person of very advanced age, with very little left to live for, and very compromised health, if they're interested in living for another minute at least, so then we would be Mechal Shabbos in order to save their life. And there's no contradiction between saying we're not obligated to pursue that, and at the same time, that we would be Mechal Shabbos in order to emphasize how the Halacha sees that value. So from a consequentialist perspective, so we see that tension somewhat, and that's a complex decision. But we also look at murder and the killing from a fundamentalist, a formalist perspective, rather, a perspective that sees rules as necessarily absolute. For the halacha does make a strong, as there a strong distinction, as the Ramah formulates it, between anything that would constitute active killing of an individual, and on the other hand, that which may not constitute an act, but which may simply be the removal of that which is interfering. I say simply as if it's remotely simple, when of course it's not at all simple, but time doesn't permit us even to begin to talk about what this distinction should be, but it reflects once again where that balance exists, that from both perspectives, from the consequentialist perspective, it's an intensely complex equation, and that we are very cognizant of the impact of the suffering, while at the same time recognizing that we do contain within that at the same time a high premium on the value and the sanctity of life. And also together with that, the formalist perspective that forces us to distinguish between a active participation in bringing about the death and that which may not meet that threshold, again, subject to much discussion as to what that entails. And therefore, that does put us in a very difficult position here as far as the question of how exactly to proceed because we are bound by that formalist prohibition that stops us both from committing suicide and participating in committing suicide. And the participation could be subject to any kinds of halakhic definitions, whether it's what's called gram ritzicha, as Lieber Schechter understands it, that one is not necessarily committing murder, but causing murder, which the way the Rambam formulates it seems to be a subset of the larger prohibition, but not necessarily subject to all of its consequences, or whether it's an aspect of what we call lifneiver, lositein mitchel, which is a broader prohibition to participate in any kind of a transgression once it's termed as such, which has its own parameters, and how exactly that impacts the decision, that impacts the behavior. These are serious, weighty halachic issues that may impact not only what the patient himself does, but also us. I don't have the time at all, I'm getting the signs to even begin to go into some of the details, but I will mention that the question of 
whether or not one can pray for a patient's demise the way the Ron formulated in the intense controversy about whether or not that's accepted, I think perhaps uh, an approach that many do recommend, I heard of Asher Weiss say this recently as well, is that presumably it's too much to say we should pray for someone to die even when we can't say that we're comfortable praying for them to continue in their current state, and that the appropriate expression is that we should pray for God to express his compassion. We should pray for God to express his Rachmanus. And here, too, as we navigate a issue which is so crucial to our society, because on the one hand, we have to maintain our allegiance to the halacha, which does prohibit any act of killing and any participation in an act of killing, for so many reasons, both formalist and consequentialist, and uh, appreciate the whole survey that Dr. Cohn presented and the, the question of all of the aspects that go beyond this act have to be very seriously considered. My father always spoke about the fact that when we talk about the right to die, that that very quickly also becomes the duty to die, and whether or not we see that tracking out in various groups, the idea that there will quickly be an expectation that, okay, uh, other relatives didn't put us through this. How come you're putting us through this? Don't you recognize the burden that you're creating? And we have an obligation to transmit that you're not a burden, that you are a human being with dignity in life and that we respect you and that we love you and that we cherish you as much as we cry over your pain and your suffering and that all of that is a part of the very delicate challenge that we as a society have in maintaining that balance. And as we say that presumably the proper prayer is that we hope that God will express his compassion on this patient, so, so too we hope that God will express his compassion on all of us as a society and give us the wisdom and the sympathy and the recognition of God's infinite wisdom to navigate the challenge. Thank you, Rabbi Feldman, Assemblyman Scher, and Dr. Cohen for your, for your wonderful presentations. We now have time for um, a few questions related to the panel.
So perhaps that would not have happened. I mean, maybe at that time the knowledge was available, but I'd like to know what could now be done, and perhaps that would give a different perspective on everything. Thank you. I, I, I did actually want to comment on, um, on, on the Give lethal doses of medication 
And if the dose of medication has been established, why does it have to be a doctor who gives that dose? Why not let a judge do it? I agree with you 100%. So the question was why does it have to be a physician that uh, writes the prescription for the dose? And that is actually my biggest, um, I, I'm in complete agreement with you, or a pharmacist. Clinical pharmacists can prescribe um, Zofor and, and anti-hyperlipidemia medications in a clinical pharmacy clinic. Um, why physician? I agree with you 100%. I think that the relationship between patient and patient provider um, tenuous right now in our culture that I think to add something like this um, is really actually detrimental to that relationship. And if it's being decided in a law, then someone outside of medicine can write the prescription. I agree with you. There is the bill that was passed was passed. Is there a reason one would not assume that in the future a mandatory language will be given, perhaps expanding who is authorized, etc. Uh, that's certainly in the Albany, uh, you'll forgive me, what we write in Trenton or Albany is not to be Sinai, right? And things are constantly being revised, uh, perhaps for the better course. Hi, I'm a community doctor who uh, at any one time has one or two patients in the hospice. Uh, Yeshiva College 89, uh, a fake town where I was in Yeshir, and I trained at the VA in Manhattan and Illinois. Um, but just for background, I think there's a slippery slope that we're not aware of, which I think is a clash between how hospice is practiced at the very end, past the point of, of your relative, I'm sorry to hear about, that we need to know about and talk about. Um, when a patient goes to the hospice, I'll get a call, I'll get a bunch of orders to sign, and among them will be this uh, double effect concept, which was referred before by Dr. Cohen, which would be, let's say, a, a sliding scale morphine for, for pain, with the understanding that pain can also bring comfort, comfort can mean sedation, may hasten death, but pain is the gateway in New York, because we don't have this in New Jersey sometimes, to, to have uh, um, some dignity and, and palliative care. The problem I see is I'll, I'll get a call at least once a year from a nurse saying we need to up the morphine. And I'll go, why? And, see, and the patient will be chain soaking. The patient will be uh, at the end of, very end of life, or, uh, due to physiologic and neurologic uh, effects on the brain and the respiratory system. The person is, I believe, totally unconscious, doesn't feel pain, but doesn't look good because their, their chest is heaving in and out. They look uncomfortable. It doesn't look comfortable to the family. The family is suffering looking at this. It's not a pretty sight. And the nurses will tell me they want to give them more morphine to smooth out the breathing. But the breathing is for a reason. It's the body is, 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 is trying to accomplish something. And it no longer is it the uh, double effect anymore. It seems like, uh, you're the expert, but it seems like that's already gone past that point. Exactly. What do you think of that? Uh, so it sounds like you're wondering whether the morphine is to treat the family suffering and watching the dying. And I would actually argue that an example you give, that, that is my concern sometimes, but um, and I've seen that as well. But in the example you gave, actually, uh, morphine is also used for respiratory distress, uh, rapid breathing, or labored breathing. And at the end of life, there are breathing patterns that are typical of anyone who's dying. 
Um, I usually give an example of it to my family so that they do not become alarmed by it. And that pattern is not typically associated with discomfort. However, if the respiratory rate is fast, it often is considered a, um, a source of potential discomfort because if you and I are breathing very fast, we feel that as discomfort and the medication is also used for that. So I think it's either counseling the family on what they're seeing as being a natural part of the dying process that we do not feel is causing discomfort for the family, for the patient, or it's counseling the nurse that um, if they're breathing at a rate of 10, but it's an abnormal pattern, we don't need to go up on the medication. But if they're breathing 28 times a minute, that is often associated with discomfort, and then you can go up on the medication. So it sounds like it's more about educating family and, um, and nursing. You made reference to the evolution of your thinking as your career uh, progressed. I guess from uh, more uh, comfortable and toward less comfortable. Could you tell us how and why your thinking changed over your uh, experience? Sure. Um, I started learning more and more about the topic and when Oregon passed, um, so I graduated medical school in 97, when Oregon passed, and finished residency in 2000. They implemented um, Oregon in 97 and 98. So my uh, training happens right at the beginning of this issue. Um, I think as a junior clinician, I um, didn't have as much experience in how to help people when they were suffering in these ways. And so this seemed like the way to help people. This, is, this was proposed as a way to help people who are suffering. But when I trained in palliative medicine, and I learned how to help people who are suffering physically, psychologically, socially, or spiritually, and help their families, um, I felt that there were other ways to address the sources of suffering that um, should be tried first. Um, I guess along the same lines that we shouldn't say yes to a toxic medication before you've had a chance to test it for a period of time and ensure that it's not toxic down the road. But in current society, we seem to say yes to things first and only take them away when things go, go awry. I'm a proponent of why don't we be careful for early on and like really test this out and then if we find it safe, then we can implement it. It's not the way the FDA is doing things right now. It's not the way our culture is doing things right now. But that's my philosophy is that if there's all these other ways we can help someone, why should we be jumping to something that really does have, you know, very heavy, weighty, um, aspect to it, and my personal belief is I do feel that withdrawing life-sustaining treatment, this is not holistic, obviously, but medically and ethically, withdrawing a life-sustaining treatment and allowing natural death, to me, is not, is not the same as administering something to intentionally hasten. And so part of family decisions that result in that from different families, and I don't feel that, that it's wrong, but I personally could never purposefully administer something with the personal intention of helping someone die sooner. If they want to do it themselves, so be it. They're not involving me as another, as another person. Thank you, Thank you very much.